MSW Media. I signed an order appointing Jack Smith. And nobody knows you. And those who say of Jack is a fanatic. Mr. Smith is a veteran career prosecutor. Wait, what law have I broke? The events leading up to and on January 6th. Classified documents and other presidential records. You understand what prison is? Send me to jail. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 44 of Jack, the podcast about all things special counsel. It is Sunday, October 1st, and I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. Hey, Allison. It is uh, October and it's spooky season, not just because Halloween is on its way, but also because Trump's court calendar is getting scary. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's piling up and it's looking worse by by the minute. Uh, We have a lot of news to get through today, including Judge Eileen Cannon granting, in part, Jack Smith's motions for conflict of interest hearings. Uh, We have some briefings regarding Walt Nauta getting access to classified materials and Jack Smith opposing a three-month SEPA delay requested by, you know who, Donald (laughs) Trump. We knew it was coming. Yeah. yeah. And and we have all kinds of filings and responses and hearings and rulings in the D.C. espionage and obstruction case with Judge Chutkin, including her well-reasoned denial of Trump's motion to recuse. We were waiting for this. That's right. We have a date set for a hearing about the narrowly tailored order restricting Trump's extrajudicial statements. Some people call it a gag order. No, don't, <laughs> we don't. call it a gag order. Don't call it a gag order. The half gag. And uh, Trump asking for SEPA and pretrial motion delays in the D.C. case. He's asking for SEPA delays in the D.C. case, not the actual, like, classified documents case. Yeah, I think it's a, then, it's a matter of time before he requests SEPA delays in the Fulton County case as well. Right, Why not? Just throw it out right. there. <laughs> He's going to be up at the New York Attorney General's office Monday like, SEPA, it's too fast. Stop it. Um, it's Yeah, that's, that's his, again, his only defense is delay. That's right. Then we have um, a couple stories about Trump's legal team, the applicability of 1512, like Title 18, Section 1512, obstructing an official proceeding. Then we will field like a listener question or two. So I'm excited about that. And if you have any questions that come up during the show, there'll be a link in the show notes for you to submit that question. All right. Andrew, where should we start today? All right, let's go to D.C., where uh, our folks will remember, of course, that uh, a few weeks ago, Trump's team filed a motion requesting that Judge Chutkin recuse herself from the trial. And basically, the reasoning was that she had made statements in other January 6th defendants' cases. And those statements kind of, yeah, vaguely referred to Trump and the fact that he had not been charged yet. And they said that based on those statements, there's no way the public could possibly have uh, confidence in her uh, being unbiased in her treatment of Trump. Now, of course, uh, Judge Chutkin rejected that request officially this week, and she issued an order in doing so. And of course, in that order, she says that her statements were not influenced by extrajudicial considerations like 
you know, things she'd seen in the news and stuff like that. Instead, right, she- Because that was this whole thing, right? Like, you watch the news, you clearly hate Donald, yes. you have to recuse yourself. And she's like, mm, these statements, which you and I discussed pretty clearly, were responses to sentencing, you know, m- memoranda right. from- Two, just two out of the 300 million people who've been sentenced for yeah. January 6th. Uh, you know, these were these were statements they made in their sentencing memos that that she had to address because that's her job. Right. That's exactly right. She so those defendants, uh, when they were putting their package together, kind of requesting, you know, as much leniency as they could get in their sentence. One of the things they pointed out was, well, uh, it's not fair that I've been convicted for this offense and the guy who I was doing it on behalf of, Donald Trump, hasn't even been charged. So she was really obligated to address those arguments in her uh, order of what sentence that defendant would receive. And so anything done in the course of that proceeding isn't really ever considered on recusal in the in consideration of a uh, recusal request because the judge is obligated to talk about those things and indicate their opinion that's their job right they listen to what you you know they know what you've been convicted of they listen to how you you know you make an argument as to how you how you feel you should be sentenced and then they have to make an opinion and and ultimately a ruling they have to do that right like if i'm being sentenced for whatever and i put in my my sentencing memorandum like uh, you know what? I'm blonde. I'm five foot eight. I don't deserve to be in jail, right? She has to be like, "Hey, you're blonde and five foot eight, and this is your reasoning for not being in jail. Here's why that doesn't work. It's not my job to determine that you're five eight. It's not <laughs> right. my job to determine that you're blonde. Uh, Here's why that's not relevant. Looking then- at you, we can see that, but yeah, it's not it's not relevant. And then for me to come back and say. Look, she put me in jail because I'm blonde and five foot eight is not a, would, an no, argument. It's, it's even worse than that. It would be like the next defendant in a totally different case right, saying, you right. should recuse because I am also blonde and five foot eight. And clearly you don't like True, this five isn't foot even my appeal. Yeah. It's somebody else's appeal just, who uh, hasn't even gone to jail. Okay, you're totally right. Yeah, yeah. Now, now I'm actually, I thought... It was ridiculous. Now it's like extra. It's turbo ridiculous. Yeah. So that's turbo basically- extrajudicial ridiculous. Right. That's basically what she said. Um, no, I'm not going anywhere. So let's look at this uh, holistically. The whole motion to recuse, massive swing and a miss. Um, and in addition to not getting it, you know, they still have her as their judge. And now she's probably not real happy with them because they've accused her on the record of being biased and, ba- and you know- uh, essentially incompetent to, uh, or, you know, not properly seeing these proceedings through. So not the best footing to start on. Yeah. I feel like they're just like poking her like, Hey, we should execute the ex joint chiefs of staff and we should, uh, shut down the whole media and treason and hang everyone. And, Oh, I'm sorry, did we want to have a hearing about my extrajudicial statements trying to influence the jury? Okay, yeah. cool. Like, it just seems like at this point, and you and I have talked about this, like, why would he do this? Why would anybody be such a, a horrible person to the judge presiding over the case that you're about to go to trial for? Yeah. And I- the only thing I can think of is just to 
prod her into uh, maybe issuing a partial gag order or t- narrowly tailoring his extrajudicial statements so that he has something more to cry about. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. I think any normal litigant in a criminal or civil matter would never do this. You would come up with strategies and you'd raise issues you thought were legitimate, but you would also raise them in a way that didn't prejudice the judge against you, didn't insult them, didn't call them biased, you know, because you know that they're going to have to make decisions that will impact you. This is like a slash and burn litigation style. It's like, it's almost like they've already decided there's no way they can win on the merits. There's no legitimate defense here. So what they're going to do is one Hail Mary pass after another at trying to create an issue they could file an appeal on after conviction. And in the course of doing that, file all these motions and then appeal all the results of these motions and delay, delay, delay. That's it. It's like burn it down. And if you can't burn it down, make it last longer. That's their whole strategy. Scorched earth, right? Yeah. Also, he here's Trump did not here's his other defense, delay. Right. Right. That's his only other defense. And he's doing this uh, in in the D.C. case. He's filing a motion to delay for SEPA considerations in the D.C. case. Now, we know the D.C. the D.C. case has about 300 pages, maybe like, I don't know, 10 documents that are that are classified these these documents are not going to be used in their case in chief, which is the the case in chief is the case that the prosecution puts on. Right. They may be used in defense. They may be Jenks material. They may be um, Brady, material, Brady material. Right. They, sure. They might be something that the that the um, defense needs to have. You know, by the law. So there's very little classified documents. Uh, not like Mar-a-Lago, at least where there's about 3,500 pages, about 300 documents. Now, he filed a motion to delay SEPA considerations in Judge Chutkin's court. And this is right after she ruled that she's not recusing herself. Bam, bam, we get these two motions, the SEPA motion for delay, and he needs more time to file his pretrial motions, like, like his motion to dismiss the whole case based on whatever... But he wants like a lot more time to file these things. That's not going to jive with the with the court schedule. And uh, Judge Chutkin has put out a minute order, what's called a minute order on the docket, where she says, OK, Department of Justice, I need you to respond to these requests for delay. And I need you to do that by October 3rd, right, which is a couple days from now. Right. So next time you and I get together, we will have the Department of Justice's response to his motions for delaying the D.C. trial for these considerations. That's right. And this is yet another hand grenade of delay. He's going to keep tossing these into the proceeding to try to create nonsense. Um, The pretrial motions that he's required to to file and now apparently needs more time to uh, handle, uh, this is a normal stuff that kind of you know, administrivia of getting ready to go to trial in a uh, in a criminal case, motion to dismiss. You might make a motion to like protect a certain witness or person from having to testify, or you might bring a privilege issue or something like that. Try an effort to keep some testimony out. I think he wants to file a um, motion to dismiss based on selective prosecution, right? 
right? Which means you're only doing this because Not fair. Donald, right? It's it's political prosec- persecution, prosecution. Right. He does this, and and uh, and the thing is, is that I guarantee you, Jack Smith has his response like ready. It's, it's filed, already. right? It, and it's based 100%. on the, It's based on the <laughs> fact that he's actually the I don't know one thousandth person charged with offenses related to. January 6th. So I'm not sure how that selective selectivity. I can't wait for that argument. We have uh, 1,112 people that we've um, tried and convicted. You're 1,113. And we've got about right now 286 behind you and more to come. Like, sorry, not to, not to be like, I know this is going to make you sad, but you're really just one in a few thousand people. <laughs> but, it's like, not, but I'm the leading candidate for the Republican Party for president. That will be his argument. He'll say, yeah. oh, it's all political. It's Joe Biden. He's doing this to me. But uh, in any case, we'll we'll tear through that when it comes out. Right now, we're we're trying to we're trying to sort through the latest uh, motions for delay. And as you said, the judge has scheduled a hearing on October 16th to have a hearing on the government's prior request to issue the don't call it a gag order on Trump over his extrajudicial statements. This is kind of interesting because we got some reporting really in the last day, I guess, that in an additional filing on Friday, the government is now rolling into their request for this gag order, Trump's recent postings, those things that he posted in the last week or so, specifically referencing the postings regarding uh, now-retired General Mark Milley, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who most his of- His speech, by the way, his like yeah, uh, retirement amazing. speech. Wow. He was like, I take an oath to a constitution, not to- He's like, not to a king, not to a queen. I take an oath to not to a person. And then he goes- not to a dictator, not to a wannabe dictator. Like he like specifically. <laughs> I wonder who we meant with that. <laughs> he was totally just talking about, you know, yeah. Biden, right? Like, no. <laughs> wow. I like, he was very pointed and he's very mad. And I'm wondering if now that the uniform is off, if the gloves also don't come off. Yeah. He, he poked the wrong bear because this one uh, <laughs> has got a bite. Um you know, of course, Trump had tweeted earlier in the week, made some crazy accusation against uh, Milley and and said he would he had committed treason and, uh, you know, I don't know, should be put to death or acknowledged that yeah. the penalty for that would be death. Now, the reason this is relevant to us, even though, you know, it's just normal, disgusting behavior by the former president, but what makes it relevant <laughs> to this show is, as the Jack Smith team pointed out, he is basically threatening an identified potential witness in this case. Milley is potentially a witness. The government has already indicated that to the defense. And now you have Trump uh, both making a comment that could threaten the witness uh, to try to, you know, force the witness not to testify, but also could prejudice the jury pool against that witness. Going out and telling however million people heard him uh, that this, that Milley had you know, accusing him of treason, that's certainly Deserves something that could to make, die. Yeah, yeah, and it could it could make witness or uh, jurors uh could prejudice their perception of Millie if in fact he testifies. Yeah. And and you know, Millie uh on 60 Minutes was like, Yep, I've got 
security. My family has security. He doesn't seem uh, afraid no. of this particular person's Donald Trump's, uh, you know, screeds about go get him. I mean, basically, he's like, Mark Milley is a traitor. Yeah. Get him. Right. Like, I mean, that's what he's saying. So it's it's. Really, um, it's scary and dangerous, but also he's like, I'm ready, bring it, I'm Mark yeah. Milley. So it's it's crazy, right? You think about why does Trump do this? Well, it's just his normal, vindictive, <laughs> small-minded, moronic comments. Uh, certainly not even the first time he said this. He said it about Comey yeah. and I a couple years ago that we right. were guilty of treason and should be put to death. Um, so maybe it's just that. But here's my my proposal is it's actually more than that. I think this is, again, part of his warped litigation strategy. He's going to keep, you draw a line in the sand, he's going to step over it. Draw another one, he'll step over that one. And the reason he's trying to push the judge into actually instigating, or I'm not, I shouldn't say instigating, to uh, to placing a gag order in some respect on him in this case, and thereby creating a massive First Amendment issue uh, that could potentially make its way to the to the Supreme Court. This is a provocative effort to create an issue he can take to the Supreme Court. Yeah. And I, I wonder, like, how many days away are we from him saying, how terrible would it be for one juror who loves Donald Trump to show up and lie to the, yeah. <laughs> on the jury questionnaire? That would be awful. It would mean that, you know, we're going in a wrong direction. But how terrible would it be for someone to show up and lie on their application so that they could be a juror to save Donald Trump? How terrible. That would be bad. You know, like yeah. I'm I'm we're days away like from that. Recruiting kind of a, recruiting right. the the candidate. Yep. I, I think you're absolutely right. So the Jack Smith team is in a really tight spot here. They have yep. to kind of so calculate. Is judge. So is the judge, right? Right. What's worse? Do nothing and and let the kind of um, level of offense that is taking place right now through his public communications continue to escalate? How bad does that get? Or do you take the risk of putting, requesting the gag order or on the judge's part, putting it in place and creating an issue that could, A, really slow down this trial and B, uh, push something to the Supreme Court in the event that, you know, the conviction does not go Trump's way. So, they're once again uh, having to make some really careful tactical decisions, uh, both principled decisions, but also uh, not without tactical implications. Yeah. And his whole, by the way, another response that he that Donald Trump submitted or his lawyer submitted on his behalf in opposition to a narrowly tailored restriction on his pretrial extrajudicial statements. <laughs> Every time I have to say it, it's like so many words. <laughs> Um, you know, he, he, he filed a, he, he put another filing in president Trump. That's who he refers to himself. Right. President Trump respectfully submits this response in opposition to the prosecution's motion to impose unconstitutional prior restraints on president Trump's political speech. Like twice they put president Trump in a sentence and then the, the motion they put. And, and so he just goes off this whole thing. We've read it's 25 pages. We've read a million of these now, and I'm not going to go into this again, but it's the same filing. It's like, yeah. you're trying to trample on First Amendment, free speech, America. 
what the hell, you know, I mean, it's just the same dumb yeah, kind it's of like a grievance, argument over a and over grievance again. argument. Like, I'm the only one between you and the government removing Wrapped right in a campaign statement, yeah, right? Yeah. Sure. If, if they do it to me, they'll do it to every American. Yeah. It's yeah. the same, same filing that we've seen a million times. So. Right. Absolutely yeah. not the first time someone has been uh, admonished by a judge to not engage in witness tampering. I mean, come on. That's basically what you're talking about. First presidential candidate, though. Right. Yeah. Okay. So what? Right. I know. I know. I'm just throwing that in there. And I mean, witness, I think, you know, you're going to see some in her, ultimately, whatever she rules, uh, reference the fact that witness tampering is not protected speech. It's kind of like defamation or something. You can't call for the death of witnesses in this case. No. Like, Fredo, like hi, like what? <laughs> I can't. <laughs> yeah, the fact that this is even a thing, it it really is kind of pushing the bounds of the judicial system to a place no it's question. never been before. And that's his deal, right? He puts pressure on things to break them, whether it's DOJ or the FBI or the judicial system or just something that he sees as an obstruction or you know, to what he wants to accomplish. So. That's what he's trying to do now. He knows his best, his only way out of this is to literally break the system. And that's what he's trying to do. You have some personal experience with that, Andy? (laughs) Just a little. Just a little. (laughs) Man, oh man. All right. So uh, Judge Chuckin has scheduled the October 16th hearing um, for his extrajudicial pretrial statements (laughs) order. That's um, man. That's a cu- like a couple of weeks away. So we'll we'll report on that for you. Um, I think we might have some friends in the courtroom who can actually maybe come on the show. Let's see if we can give them a call. That'd be great. Um, I would love to know what it's like in that courtroom when that hearing happens. His appearance, by the way, Donald Trump's appearance is waived. She does this for every single thing so that he can't delay it. Like I have seventeen other trials that day. I need more time. <laughs> I'm getting <laughs> so my hair just, cut that day. I can't be there. <laughs> no, you're not. So she's just waving everything. She's like, you don't have to be there, okay, fella? Just send your lawyers. Yeah, um, and it's also, I'm sure she's thinking like, I'm going to wave it every time I can. So he can't come in later and file some crazy motion saying it's not fair. You're you're impeding my campaign because she's had will have had a record of basically conceding to his choice to of convenience. That's right. Yep. Up to you, buddy. That's right. You come or not, right? That's exactly what I would be doing as well. Uh, so I appreciate that. All right, we have a lot more um, to get to, but we <laughs> we have we have to take a quick break. So everybody, stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis' first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, 
How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Welcome back. Okay, let's head down to Florida where Judge Cannon finally grants the DOJ motion for Garcia hearings. So these are, of course, we've talked about these a couple times. These are the conflict of interest hearings that uh, the government requested the judge engage in, having pointed out the the seemingly obvious conflicts of interest presented by uh, attorney John Irving. First of all, John Irving, who represents Carlos de Oliveira and some other witnesses. And also Stanley Woodward, who used to represent um, Uciel Tavares and still represents Walt Nauta. So you have some very clear... Uh, and everyone else. Like that guy... Right. Woodward, he, yeah. Like he puts on his running shoes every time he goes to court because yeah. he's back and forth to like three different courtrooms representing January 6th defendants, representing Trump defendants. He's yep. he's all there's, over the place. So there's a minefield of potential conflicts, but at least one comes into clear focus on each of them. Um, De Oliveira uh, and um, Nauta now stand to be basically accused by people like Tavares and others. And the the, the prior representations are, are a problem because, uh, you know, uh, Stan Woodward can't accurately represent Nauta um, if Tavares takes the stand against not a, things like that. So, but if Tavares waves his conflict of interest and says, "You know what? I'm not worried about being cross-examined uh, by my former attorney who told me to lie." By the way, that's just the "told me to lie" part. That's me speculating. Right, right. <laughs> I just want to. He, he he might have said, "Like, say you don't recall," like Passantino did with Cassidy Hutchinson. But that seems to be the. The go-to, hey, you don't recall stuff that you actually recall, but we don't have proof of that. But, you know, he might waive his It's conflict. possible, but both of them have to waive it, right? Because each of them has a uh, potential problem with Stan Woodward having represented uh -huh. the other one. They each and stand that's to why, lose. And that's why Jack Smith wanted alternate counsel at this hearing to advise everybody. Right. So that... 
that a lawyer, an alternate lawyer, like they had up in Judge Boasberg's court when they appointed a um, a public uh, defender to Tavares, they wanted some alternates down here so they could say, hey, by the way, Nauda, uh, De Oliveira, here's the problem for you. Right. If Woodward is still your lawyer or if John Irving is still your lawyer. But the judge denied that. Right. So the, it's it would be a practical and complete thing to do to have those alternate counsels there to advise these guys, to explain to them exactly what the potential conflict is and the impact of it. You don't want Woodward explaining that because he's the he's the guy that's conflicted. <laughs> no, I'm great. So, you trust me. You trust me. Come yeah. On, so hug, there, there's kiss. a there's a clear judicial um, economy reason for having them there. But also, let's be perfectly fair. It's a little bit of a tactical move by the prosecution, right? Because they know that if you get an actually uh, independent kind of neutral counsel to advise these guys, it's possible you might split one or two of them off as cooperators, as happened like with, you did with Tavares. Tavares. That's yeah, right. So exactly. everybody's working it here. Of course, uh, Cannon's decision went really against both logic and what might have been helpful for the prosecution. Um, so she's going to have the hearing. You know, again, here's here she is splitting the baby in an illogical way. I'm going to have the hearing but I'm not going to have the lawyers there who could actually make sure that it's done completely um, in a voluntary and intelligent way. So, Or witnesses. Know. She's yeah. like, I don't want to hear your evidence. Let's have a hearing, but I don't want to hear your evidence is basically <laughs> hey, what no, she no, said. No, no, no. I don't need any facts for this. Just let's talk about it. <laughs> Just get in front of me. Yeah. I doubt she's going to rule from the bench too. Like, you know, the result no. of this hearing is going to be, okay, let me think about it another few months. month weeks. or two out. Yeah. That's what she's doing. And this is, seems to be her M.O. so far, like not making any overt, horrible rulings that, that could be overturned by the 11th Circuit, but just taking a long time. Took her three months right, to get that protective order for classified information out like that. Like, dude, it just it seems really obvious to me. She's nickel and diming delay on this, but it's not much you can do about that. And. We already sort of suspected that this what this trial wasn't going to take place in May. It's going to be well after the next election. So she granted those motions in part, granted the hearings. Those hearings, both of them are on the same day for Irving and Woodward, you know, uh, De Oliveira yep. and uh, the other witnesses. Uh, that is October 12th. One is like, I think, at a, a, like 11 in the morning. One's at one in the afternoon. And she's like, so yeah, split the baby, like you said. No witnesses. I don't want any evidence. No standby lawyers. I'm not Judge Boesberg. Yeah, you definitely aren't Judge yeah. Boesberg. You know, she's a conundrum. I mean, you, you kind of walk away from each of these decisions trying to draw the line. Is this an actual effort to delay things and help out the defendant? Or is just she's like doesn't really appreciate the the importance of moving this forward quickly? Um, does she not appreciate the significance of having alternative counsel there to do what, what we just talked about? So that old that old kind of bias or incompetence balance is uh you never quite get it resolved with her. Nope, that's very true. Uh, also, uh, September 25th, the Department of Justice and lawyers for Walt Nada filed about 30 pages 
of supplemental briefs because Walt Nada's like, hey, I mean, I was in the Navy. I should be able to look at classified stuff. Sure. And the DOJ is like, no, bro, you're not being charged with espionage. I've seen all the, the Mission Impossible movies. I think I should hey. be able to see classified now because I'm. I'm friends with like. Andy McCabe, so <laughs> I'm definitely not getting access to classified. For that I stood one. within five feet of the former director of the FBI one time, <laughs> so I should totally get. I should be able to see everything. So uh, the, the the DOJ and lawyers for not about thirty pages of supplemental briefs. Judge Cannon asked for these briefs after a closed hearing, a sealed hearing. On September 12th, it is now September 30th, so here's the filings two weeks later. Now, DOJ has produced classified documents to Nauta's lawyer, but has opposed Nauta seeing them. Like, he's not, he doesn't need any of this. Okay, he can see the one document that he saw in that room of spilled boxes when we, right. you know, the photos that we got in the indictment of the spilled boxes that that somebody took. Okay, he can see that one. But the other ones he doesn't need to see. He's not charged with retention of national defense information. He's charged with obstructing, moving boxes. That's He doesn't yeah. need to see any of what's in the boxes. And um, this is common, by the way, in SEPA cases for somebody to want to see and then be, uh, you know, have that objected by, by the government. But as Roger Parloff points out, there's no 11th Circuit precedent here because most SEPA cases happen in Virginia and DC and New York, right? Yep. Like where like where the CIA headquarters is in Virginia. That's right. DC because that's where all the classified information kind of lives. Now the Department of Justice there argued Nada doesn't need to see them like I said because he's not charged under Espionage Act, but it appears Cannon finds this a very difficult issue um to rule on. So both sides have submitted briefs 2 weeks after a hearing, a sealed hearing. Um, but yeah, which again, seems like this is all slow roll. And then Jack Smith has filed his opposition to Trump's motion to delay SEPA section four. And Trump has said, I need three extra months for this. And Jack Smith is like, no, you absolutely don't. That will throw the whole schedule into chaos. Quote, in light of brief delays, in the entry of SEPA Section 3 protective orders, which is the protective order we just got after months, and defense counsel read-ins to certain compartments, the court invited the defendants to file a motion to extend deadlines related to SEPA Section 4. Hey, it took me three months, right, to decide on Section 3. So right. you, you get an extra couple, you get a little bit more time in Section 4. Instead, Defendant Trump, joined by his co-defendants, filed a motion that threatens to upend the entire schedule established by the court, and that amounts to a motion to continue the May 20th, 2024 trial date. Defendants argue for a schedule that would delay even the initiation of SEPA Section 4 proceedings by over three months. And here's the problem. It, by doing that, Trump, number one, misstates what nece what's necessary to file an ex parte submission setting forth general defense theories. General defense theories, which he should have had since two years ago. Mm-hmm. Number two, falsely accused the government of delaying discovery. He did that in this filing. You delayed discovery. No, SEPA <laughs> section three <laughs> took a minute to Who is this SEPA that you keep talking about? I don't know. I don't like her hair. I, he doesn't even know what he's talking about. I think about. SEPA is biased against me. SEPA's totally biased. Yeah. I don't like her. Number three, unnecessarily proposing overhauling the SEPA schedule, including by implementing responsive non-ex parte Section 4 briefings, even though that approach is foreclosed by the 11th Circuit's decision. And I love how every time 
every time Jack Smith gets a chance to throw the 11th Circuit precedent in here, like, hey, everybody. I mean, just he want you knows to know. that's that is one of the few things he can do to get this judge's attention. Okay, <laughs> the the your overseers in your backyard have already weighed in on this. This novel concept of precedent, okay, we're going to point it out to you. Yeah, and then also make arguments about prudential searches and discovery obligations that are not relevant to this to deciding this motion. He did that, a overstating the complexity of pretrial discovery litigation and meritless they all of this is meritless in any event, right. the DOJ says. Right. Current CEPA schedule should proceed apace. And, you know, for the foregoing reasons in his conclusion, if the court's inclined to grant an extension, he says, for the defendant's ex parte filing because of the three months that she took to decide SEPA Section 3, because remember we talked to Brian Greer who said you have to s- decide Section 3 before Section 4 and Section 4 before Section 5. It's like a funnel. It has to go in order. And so he's like, look, if you need to grant uh, some time because Section 3 took so long for no good reason, you know. Yeah, um, give him a couple Go days. ahead. He says it should be no longer than about a week. He actually puts in a filing about a week. Uh, this yeah. is the DOJ. And the other dates in the court schedule order should be maintained. So he's like, three months? No. Yeah. You can delay it like a week. That's all you need. So again, most here's another case. Really, is, well, all we're litigating is delay. Um, and, and the judge here, you know, she, she makes your head want to explode. This whole idea of like, you have an issue, you've got a motion, you do the hearing, and then later after the hearing, you request briefing, which then takes more time. Compare that to how it's done in D.C. Judge Chutkin gets a motion. She very quickly says, okay, fine, government, I need your response by this day, uh, October third. Yeah, and then we're gonna, and then we'll have a hearing the next day, and then I give you my, I give you my ruling the day after that. Like that's how you move things along. Um, it's typically considered beneficial to have the br- the briefings, the papers before you get together in court to discuss something. Just for that reason, it makes it quicker. But yeah, there's no sense of urgency here. And um, Andy, she, uh, Judge Chuckin. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is probably way busier than Judge Cannon. It would I w- seem so. I mean, Judge Cannon is the only judge in her courthouse, right? So I guess maybe she's probably got uh, some other stuff to do because there's no one else there to do it. But the fact that she's the only judge in that courthouse <laughs> tells you there's not a ton of stuff to do there. Um, you know, she's kind of in a satellite from, and she's not the only judge in the. District. I mean, no, 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 no. She's just the only one in that courthouse. It's like a little. It's like I think of it as like a satellite office from the from the main the center of that district is in Miami, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas what I don't even remember how many judges are on the district court bench in D.C. But the simple fact that they've already handled almost a thousand cases, (sighs) they've got almost a thousand January six cases, right? So, yeah, there's. a pretty, uh, pretty active practice in Judge Chutkin's chambers. Kind of sad out of all those cases that uh, Donald Trump could only find two that he found objective, like statements that he objected <laughs> to <laughs> for uh, for his motion to have her recuse herself, uh, which sure. is just so ridiculous. All right, everybody, we have more to get to, but we have to take another quick break. Stick around. We'll be right back. 
Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, So for a while now, the question about the applicability of Title 18 U.S. Code Section 1512, which you know, long time we've talked about this, that's obstructing an official proceeding, has been uh, winding its way through the courts. The applicability of this law has been winding its way through a court. Several rioters from January 6th have filed motions kind of contesting what the law means. They've, they've contested what intent means, or they've said that since they had nothing of value to gain from obstructing the electoral certification, that they shouldn't be charged with this. And now for the second time, the Department of Justice has asked for an extension to file their briefing, their thoughts on this matter. Currently, their response is due on October 2nd, but they would now like until October 30th saying that the Department of Justice attorneys responsible for this briefing, quote, have been heavily engaged with the press of previously assigned matters with proximate due dates. Like, we've got a lot going on in this court. Now, the 1512 charge has been used over 300 times, I think 317 to be exact, at least as of this recording, in in, uh, January 6th riot cases, and two times in the Trump coup indictment in D.C., right? 1512K and 1512C2, which is um, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding and obstructing an official proceeding. And we knew that this was coming. I I mean, well, 
you know, we've talked about it since forever. At, so they're relying on this um, particular charge. Now, we'll keep you posted, but you and I, Andy, have talked in previous episodes. I don't think this actually impacts Trump's charge of 1512 because he actually does have something of value to yeah. lose. That's right. right? It, it all comes down to that issue of uh, the statute. Said, I don't have it right in front of me, but the statute basically says uh, if you corruptly perform the following acts. And it's that, so that word co- corruptly kind of defines what sort of intent you have to have. And right. many of these litigants, these are like lower uh, level people who were in the Capitol, you know, involved in the mayhem, what have you. They're saying, well, w- well, we didn't do anything corruptly because we didn't get anything out of it. We didn't, we didn't receive any like pecuniary benefit from doing right this. no money nothing of value we didn't we weren't doing it to get a job or to make money or to enrich ourselves or any of that we stuff we did it because trump told us to that's right we love that's that right. guy so there's a there is an issue there um you know it's it's a place that i think could benefit from some appellate court uh you know specification on exactly what corruptly requires but in the trump case he very clearly did what he did for corrupt purposes. He was trying to win the election that he had just lost. He's trying to steal And he was fundraising off of it. I mean, yeah, talk about so, pecuniary benefits. Like right. so a couple unless, hundred million dollars. Right. So unless a court comes in and basically completely rewrites the statute in some significant way, which could happen, but I think is highly unlikely, um, I don't think this has uh, will have a huge impact on his charges. Right, because, I mean, SCOTUS could come in and, like they did with the bribery and corruption law. Yeah. And say, That's right. you know what, you have to actually walk up to somebody with a bag of money and say, this is for yeah. this act. And the other person has to say, thank you for giving me this money to so that I can vote on this legislation. Right. Um, they, you know, they might rewrite 1512C2, but again, like you said, even if they do, it doesn't really impact Trump's charges. I don't it, think I just, so. That's right. It just wouldn't unless they completely take it off the books. Yeah, they could come in and say, create a very high bar like they did in the McDonald case, saying basically, okay, all you trespassers on the Capitol, in order to be uh, convicted, the government has to prove a quid pro quo, that you received something of benefit in order to do your trespassing. I think that's really unlikely. I think it's more likely the court will come in and say, no, you were there clearly in support of Donald Trump. You did, that's your chosen candidate, your chosen party, whatever. What you did was in conformance with conferring a benefit to your chosen candidate. And therefore that satisfies the corruptly. Those are, those conflicting uh, reasonings would represent kind of the two boundaries of where the court could fall out on it or really anywhere in the middle. So I think that's what we're likely to get, but it's unlikely to affect the charge in Trump's case. Yeah, no, I agree. And uh, I think he has some new lawyers, doesn't he? he <laughs> Donald Trump just yes. hired a couple of uh, of, of people. I, how, and wow, like, I'm I'm kind of proud of him. Like, good job. You found some lawyers. Maybe they can start doing things on time by now. Oh, no, that's, that's not part of the plan. So we learned from Politico that Trump has added at least two veteran attorneys to help him defend uh, these many cases. Um, the first, I'm going to say Emil Bove. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Could be Emil, could be Bove for last name. But in any case, I'm going to call him Emil Bove. 
former federal prosecutor who was co-chief of the National Security Unit at the Southern District of New York, or the Manhattan U.S. Attorney's Office, and also Kendra Wharton, a seasoned white-collar defense lawyer with uh, some ties to Capitol Hill. Both of them have signed on to the legal team that's been organized by Trump attorney Todd Blanche. In recent days, uh, Bove actually joined Blanche's firm, which you'll recall Blanche started to conduct the representation of Trump. He was with a different firm that he left in order to become Trump's lawyer, and so he started his own little shop. So Bove has joined that team. Wharton has actually launched her own firm, and uh, that firm is expected to partner with Blanche, according to Yeah, if you're going to represent Trump, you have to just start your own firm. No firm firm is going to touch None of your prior lawyer friends want to do it with you, so you have to kind of go out on your own. Sir, this is a Wendy's. We don't have lawyers for you. Yeah, Yeah. there's no firm that's going to touch you. So you have to either join Blanche's new firm that he created just to do this or make your own, which is what Wharton did. That cracks me up. You you imagine that when you're you're the lawyer and you've you received the call from, I don't know, Boris Epstein or something, and you go running into your, you know, the guy who has the office next to you, you go running in there. Hey, they, Trump wants to hire me to be his lawyer. Come on, let's go do it. And your 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 neighbor is like, hey, dude, I love you, but no, man, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going down that road. No, yeah. thank Oh, you're you starting your much. own firm? Cool, bro. Good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Bove and Wharton are expected to work on Trump's criminal cases, including the New York criminal case uh, brought by Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg and the federal cases filed by Special Counsel Jack Smith. Trump is also facing a fourth criminal case in Fulton County, Georgia, and has hired separate uh, lawyers, a separate team for that matter. Yeah, mm-hmm. although Rudy's Fulton County attorney just quit him, which is kind of fun. And sued him. <laughs> his, oh, no, that's a different one. Oh, Costello different one. sued him. Costello's his... It, one of his remaining lawyers was like, I'm out, peace out. So oh, <laughs> he's just, he's so effed. Jeez, jeez, that's tough times for Rudy. I was sh- shocked, although I shouldn't have been surprised at all, that Costello... Rudy made some really disparaging comments about Costello when he found out that Costello was suing him for the unpaid bill. And they contacted Costello for a comment. He, of course, refused to comment until they told him what Rudy said. And then he proceeded to rip Rudy on the record. So it's really, uh, it's getting ugly up there on on Team Rudy or former Team Rudy. Yeah, that sounds fun. Fight, 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 fight. Like they're just, they're going to tear each other apart. It's a schoolyard. Yeah. We don't have to do anything. We're all standing around them in a circle yelling, fight, fight, fight. (laughs) Okay. Um, Okay. So Blanche, we know, uh, is also an alumnus of the Manhattan U.S. Attorney's Office, SDNY. Uh, and he seems to have emerged now as the architect of Trump's multi-front legal battle. So the new hires kind of further solidify his imprint on some of the most significant criminal cases, right? He's He appears to really be the quarterback over several of those cases. Now, regarding the other two, people who know them have, have been commenting. Here's one quote. Emil is an expert in white collar and SEPA related litigation, and his trial skills are among the best in the business. Todd Blanche said in a statement referencing the Classified Information Procedures Act, uh, which, of course, we know is the federal law governing the use of classified documents in criminal cases. Blanche continued, we are thrilled and lucky to have him on our team defending President Trump and all of our other clients. (laughs) 
We're thrilled and lucky to have anybody on our team. (laughs) I'm thrilled to have another breathing human being with a law degree to do some of this work because Todd Blanche probably hasn't uh, seen his family in weeks. (laughs) Probably not. Uh, Yeah, I think he also said, what, Kendra's a brilliant lawyer. Uh, Clients have trusted her for years. This is Wharton, Kendra Wharton. Yes. um, Starting her own firm. And she's providing the same excellent service to our team that's been her signature for many years. Okay. That seems like a particularly bland statement, but I don't know. Yeah, so sit down and get ready to have to say a bunch of shit that you don't want to say to a judge. You're welcome. Yeah, uh, and and good starting your own firm because you're going to have to fold after this because you could never be seen in front of those judges again. You just go go take the bar exam in a different state after this because yeah, <laughs> you're never going to be able to like look Judge Chutkin in the eye as a serious attorney in any case. We're, um, go- we're going to require that you take positions in court that are not based on fact and likely to uh, prejudice every <laughs> judge against you and. Chris Keys weighed in with, um, and make sure you get a retainer up front. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, totally. I, I made that up. I made that three million. Up. Get it up front. It. Now, this also coincides. Jack Smith brought on a new person onto his team, uh, Alex Whiting. We've talked about this. His deputy at the Hague, uh, yep. in the 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 Kosovo War Crimes Department, I guess. So it appears now. Uh, that the D- DC case may have Whiting as a trial lawyer because he's trial experienced, right? right? Right. So I think he's I I don't have confirmation of this, Andy, but I think he specifically brought Alex Whiting on for the the DC trial, just like he brought David Raskin on, and he brought him on last year, but he hasn't really showed up on any pleadings until just now. But I think Raskin might be one of the head, if not the head trial lawyer, down in in Florida because he's really really good at that. And we and Brian Greer, who was on. Uh, as you know, last week was like, yeah, that guy, sweet. Love David Raskin. He's He would be an excellent trial lawyer. So I think we we may now also see the DOJ's, uh, uh, you know, team, their prosecution team sort of gelling. Yeah, I think so. I don't know Whiting. Um, I'm sure he's a great lawyer. Uh, I do know Raskin. Raskin's top drawer. They're on the, on the list of probably top five national security lawyers in government. I mean, I don't care who's making it. Raskin makes anybody's top five list. He's been around for a long time. He's had a bunch of big cases. The Trump team tried to really kind of smear him at the outset of this case with all those allegations of, uh, of, I don't know, impropriety and conversations right. that happened around, um, yeah. the beginning of the case that done, none of that seems to have gone anywhere which is what we all expected. So uh, I, I agree with you. I think Raskin's probably focused on that one. Yeah, top five, number one, headed to number one with a bullet. There you um, go. Yeah, no, there you yeah, go. he's, yeah. I, I forgot Trump badmouthed him uh, at the yeah. uh, at the onset. This was a that the, probably in the, the, the winter, like right before the holidays of, of last year when Raskin was actually brought onto the team. But he hasn't appeared on too many filings. So yeah. we'll see. And again, that's not Jamie Raskin. That's not... The congressman. This is David Raskin. He's That's a, right. a, an attorney. And back to the Trump lawyers, you know, both have, have pretty notable experience. Uh, Bove, we know, handled matters, including the investigation of Guo Wang Wei, who was a Steve Bannon ally. He's the guy that owned the boat that Steve the Bannon, boat. I think, was arrested on. By the, um, on by the, fraud the post case. office cops. Yeah. Yes, yes. The, the uh, we build the wall guy. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, uh, uh, Guo was also indicted earlier this year on uh, fraud charges uh, involving a, an alleged billion-dollar fraud sc- 
scheme. Um, so in addition to him, Bove also worked on the prosecution of Caesar Sayoc Jr., who you'll remember as, I think, the dude who lived in a van and planned to send bombs through the mail to a whole list of people who he thought were being mean to uh, former the CNN President bomber, Trump. right? Yeah, yeah. Like he had all these stickers on his van. Like, yeah, yep. I remember Hated that guy. CNN. I think some government folks and also media folks. Um, and he took a huge hit uh, on a guilty plea and I think will be spending the rest of his life in jail, if I remember that one correctly. Bove was prosecutor on that case. That's right. That's oh, right. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. So there you have it. New legal uh, talent for the Trump team, and uh, they could sorely use it. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually surprised because, honestly, this is going to be their last case. <laughs> I guess they're <laughs> like, be. hey, you know, give me, give me, like, like Keys did, like you said, like, hey, give me $5 million. This will yeah. be, I'll create my own firm. This will be my last case, but yeah. I, I'll do it for five. Like, it all, it, I, I don't, I don't get like the guy who prosecuted Caesar Sayoc uh, is willing to go out on this limb. Yeah. Right? It also doesn't mean they'll be around like five minutes from now. Right. Cause people come True. and go and they say, oh, he's the new lawyer. And then they're gone. Um, yeah. That's so true. it's, but these are big names. They are, know. we'll see. They we'll are see talented people. Um, so that's good for him, but let's see if you can keep them around. Yeah. All right. We have to take a quick break, but I have a question. I have some questions for you about, uh, Scott Hall down in Georgia. I know that's a state case and we don't cover that here on the Jack podcast, but it might have implications in the federal case. So I want to talk to you about that. Cause I know that you, you know, you're an expert in these kinds of things, but we have to take a quick break. So everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said... Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. 
Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right, everybody, welcome back. So the big news yesterday, I mean, first of all, there were a million different filings. Everybody on Trump team MAGA lost all of their filing, like all of their bids in court in Georgia. It was a really uh, kind of a hard day to follow all the legal filings that went on this past Friday. But the big the big story, Scott Hall, who is a bail bondsman, yep. uh, who worked with Sidney Powell to uh, steal some... I, or, you know, breach some voting machines in Coffee County, very conservative Coffee County. He is flipped and he's cooperating with Fonnie Willis. And while that's a huge story in Georgia, uh, in the state case, which of course we're going to go over, you know, Pete Strzok and I'll talk about that on Clean Up on L45 because that's where we cover Fulton County. But this could have implications in the federal cases, couldn't it? I mean, if you've got a cooperating witness I imagine that anything he says, and he has to, under his agreement, testify truthfully to everything, which includes a 63-minute phone call to Jeffrey Clark, and, and you know, includes, I mean, he's got kind of his hands on a lot of, of stuff that, that happened in the, in the national federal case, um, not just Georgia, in Coffee County, but he, if you are going to testify and I think he's going to be a witness for the state, that can be used in, in federal court, can't it? I mean, you've, you've seen these kinds of cases before, right, where you have somebody who's in a state court and also in, a, in, a federal, in the federal court system. Can you use those statements? Absolutely. You can use them all day long. Um, so statements made under oath in a judicial proceeding, which these would be if he takes the stand and testifies, are are universally um, admissible in another criminal proceeding or another civil proceeding. It's actually a specific exception to the hearsay rule. It would normally be hear hearsay, but oh, the hearsay rule basically prohibits testimony that's not direct, right? Testimony that's offered uh, to prove the truth of the matter asserted, but um, that keeps things out. Like you couldn't take the stand and say, Andrew told me he bought the drugs in my narcotics trial because that, that would be hearsay. Well, even like emails and stuff, but there's, but because of exceptions, there's right? many exceptions yeah. to hearsay. And one of them explicitly says this, that testimony in judicial proceedings that was given under oath, essentially that, that can get admitted. So as a, and I assume his, he made a recorded statement as well. Um, we don't. We haven't heard the statement. Yeah. Uh, so but he made a recorded statement to the state. I am assuming that because that's part of the proceeding, that's also admissible. Yeah. Anything. Um, any statements that he made to investigators or to prosecutors in the course of their investigation. Now that now that he's going to be a witness for them, they have to turn all those statements over to the defense in the Fulton County case because now that's discoverable. Um, so that so that the defense can use those other statements, prior statements, uh, to cross-examine him, try to make him look like he's telling different stories. Uh, so that's there. How it affects Jack Smith, well, for, number one, in the way we just mentioned, whatever comments he makes on the record in the judicial proceeding under oath, 
can be entered in the federal case. But also, oftentimes when someone um, when someone cooperates, they enter into an well every time they enter into a cooperation agreement with the prosecutors, right? They say, okay, I will agree to be your witness and I'll be truthful about everything. And in return, you're going to drop some of the charges against me or charge me with lesser things and, and, you know, charges. Right, because in this case, he he pled guilty to all five counts, but they became misdemeanors. Five misdemeanors. Yeah, that was a good deal for gets, him. It's a really good deal. He gets five years of probation. He doesn't yeah. have to go to jail at all. And I mean, I I suspect all the other people are like, Dang. Five years probation, seems- 200 hours of community service, all pretty good deal when you were facing a RICO conviction. And let's remember, the case against him probably pretty strong because it's got, there's videotape evidence, there's audio evidence of these folks that were involved in the Coffee County thing. So he gets a good deal. Probably a part of that deal, well, I shouldn't say probably, maybe a part of that deal is requires him to also cooperate or testify truthfully in other jurisdictions that bring prosecutions based on the same conduct. That is frequently added into a cooperator's deal um, when you know that there are other jurisdictions that might want to use him as well. So we don't know that yet. I haven't heard that reported. But But when they say like all proceedings... Yeah, like that could include that. Because I mean, we've got sort of a general idea, you know, a general idea where they say you have to cooperate in all proceedings related to these crimes. That could mean in other jurisdictions. Yeah. They could actually oh. identify it specifically. They could say you must, if requested, you must also cooperate with the uh, prosecutors in the D.C. Circuit or whatever, or mm. state prosecutors in Michigan, whatever, whatever it might be. I don't. I'm just guessing. Well, right, because he also Patrick Byrne. Right when we when you and I have talked about this national sort of um, push to breach voting machines. It happened in Antrim County in Michigan. It happened like it happened all over the, all over the country. And we're like, well, I figure I like, it seems like that's something that Jack Smith should prosecute. Right. Because it's on the national, it's on the federal level that could be included in that. But it also, like you, like you have said, it might be a mop up case. It might be something that he adds later after Trump is done. So, so it's not to even take a, possibility of slowing that case down. Yeah. And the final consideration is, even if it's not explicitly written into his agreement, the fact that he has an agreement and then takes the stand in the Fulton County case and testifies, if he is later uh, called to testify by the government in Trump's case or a follow-up case or whatever that might be, he's got a much harder time defending that, right? It's going to be harder to come in and say, plead the fifth. I'm not going to testify because I'm afraid I of being prosecuted when he's already got a cooperation agreement in really the only other jurisdiction that could possibly prosecute him. So uh, all in all, it makes it much more likely that he could, and maybe they don't want him or need him, but he could uh, be a, a, a witness in one of the federal cases. Yeah, and even if not a witness, like just somebody to give you more leads uh, on yeah. other other cases because he he... Sidney Powell's having a bad day. Yeah. Um, And listen, dude uh, dude is on Team America now, right? So mm -hmm. typically when people make that decision, they take the deal, he pleads out, he's there, you know, they kind of take it all the way. Especially, like, this guy's not, he's not a criminal outside of this context. He's just some dude. He's a bail bondsman, right? Yeah, so he's probably someone who's inclined to cooperate anyway. Um, And I I really don't think he's going to be the last person you see take a plea in the Fulton case. 
No, but he who flips first flips best, right? That's like right. It, that's you get a that's good deal right. there. But I, I, I would, I wouldn't be surprised if she's sitting around waiting to hand that deal to other people too. Yep. Uh, all right. So, do we have any listener questions? Because you know, if you have a question for Andy or I or or Brian Greer or anybody else who we bring on the show, you can submit that by clicking the link in the show notes. What? Who do we have this week? Okay. So this week we have Cosmo, and Cosmo writes in a question that I think really touches on something a lot of people have been thinking about lately. Cosmo says, I always look forward to your new insights every week. I have a question about the argument that conspiracy defendants who separate themselves into an earlier trial help the defense of later defendants. Um, He says he understands how it does give the later defendants a, a kind of a sneak peek look at the government's case. But he says, I also wonder how any one defendant in a conspiracy can stand trial alone. I would think that the fact that it's a conspiracy would require evidence to be introduced about the actions of other conspirators, but they won't be there to defend themselves. Good question. And you're pretty much, you're leaning in the right direction on all this stuff. So let's talk about it a little bit in in the context of Fulton County, just because I think that's a little bit easier. Obviously, the government brings a case against 19 people. They want to put that case on one time, so they want to keep everyone together. But in Georgia, you've got these really strict speedy trial rules, laws, that enable a defendant to basically split themselves off and go early, like within a, within two months or something like that. And that's what's happening to Chesbro and Powell. So that's how a defendant splits themselves off. It's much harder to do in the federal system because even though you have, a, of course, a federal speedy trial right, it's not uh, defined as clearly as it is in Georgia. And the government can actually push back on your desire to split yourself off and go early. Um, and the judge ultimately makes a decision between the competing interests of speedy trial versus the government's interest in putting on a good case, judicial economy, that sort of stuff. So it's a little, little more gray. But nevertheless, in a, in a conspiracy case, yes, Cosmo, you're right. The government has to prove the entirety of the conspiracy. And so that requires putting on all of the evidence, whether it's just for two defendants in an early trial or for the remaining 17 in the big case they still have to put all the evidence on. Now, it doesn't matter that in that early trial, the other defendants aren't there to quote-unquote defend themselves. That's just not a factor. The government has that evidence. The fact that the evidence, by putting it out there in the public sphere, could have a neg- create negative impressions in the public about these defendants who will come later that's just part of what happens uh, in a trial. There's no specific rule or constitutional principle that, that prohibits that. So yeah, all the evidence would get put on in both trials. The later defendants get have the benefit of getting that sneak peek and seeing how the government puts on their case. Um, but they also have the downside that you've pointed out that people have now really heard them, their names being dragged through the mud. Yeah, it kind of helps them set up. Uh, I mean, that's why people like have those uh, joint defense agreements, right? Because everybody can hear and get information from from lawyers yep. and hearings and stuff like that before a trial even starts. But yeah, in this one, and you know, we just saw the hearing um, about some pretrial stuff in Georgia, and Judge McAfee, who I mean, honestly, so far seems like a pretty decent jurist. Yeah. 
Yeah, doing a um, fine job down there, I think. Yeah, he he he. By the way, denied every single <laughs> like motion, like uh, Jeff Clark's motion to remove the the electors' motion to remove, denied um, people trying to dismiss their cases on based on you know bullshit. Like he's like, no, 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 no. Right. But he he agreed that this trial is going to take four to five four to five months just for. Sydney and the cheese, right? Yeah. Um, Sydney Powell and, and uh, Kenneth Cheesebrow. Uh, who, by the way, I asked Anna Bauer. I guess it's pronounced Chesbro. No, come on. I'm don't take my cheese nickname, away. Nickname. Yeah, I know. <laughs> don't take my cheese. His nickname is the cheese. So, have that. I'm um, I'm good with that. The cheese, cheese man. He's from Wisconsin. So the cheese, um, but it, you know, that just for the two of them is going to take four or five months because again, like you said, the pro the prosecution, the state has to put on the entire Rico case for yep. just these two or, and there are still, I think, uh, I think I heard in the hearing six people who haven't filed either to sever or for speedy trial. And by the way, one of my favorite new things, apparently they call these trials speedies. <laughs> down in down in Georgia, because he's like, look, yes, it's going to be in in uh, courtroom five A. Um, I'm pretty sure that we'll be done. We have a couple other speedies that we're doing. Like he calls them speedies, which is just speedies. A, yeah, cracks me up. Uh, but yeah, it four or five months for the entire thing to be put on. So for just two people, and that is probably about how long the other trial for however many people are left that don't flip and plead. Yeah. Um, and, re uh, and remember case. that one is the state case it's going to be on tv yep it's so all televised and trump has said trump has decided he's he said i'm not going to try to remove this to federal court yeah um i think so that was a predictable actually a good move on their part what don't waste time you're not going to get it anyway all those motions got denied he had a, a weaker case for that i think that certainly than meadows yeah. and and maybe even than Clark or others, and wasn't worth the danger of having to take the stand and testify, expose himself yeah. like that. So, and yeah. it kind of makes me second guess my wanting the federal trials to be televised because if Trump wants it, I don't. I'm like, mm, I don't know if I want that. <laughs> like, yeah. I just I, everything Trump wants. If I want it to, it makes me question myself. Right. But, uh, but he, the cameras are there and that might to him be a benefit in his mind. I don't know. Yeah. I think, I think there would be some societal benefit to having the federal cases televised, but it's too late. Like you can't do this one different than every other federal case. That would just be creating so much room for him You're to complain him a, and issues. Yeah. To reason to appeal. appeal. Right? So I, they have, yeah. they're kind of stuck with where they are, I think. Anyway. There you go. That's our listener question for the week and a good one. Thanks, Cosmo. Yep. There'll be a link in the show notes if anybody wants to submit a question. Thank you so much, Cosmo. That was a great question. And uh, everybody, thank you so much for listening to the Jack podcast. We really appreciate th there. It seems like the focus is down in Georgia, but man, there is a lot of important stuff, particularly coming up in October with these hearings in these federal cases. So I look forward to discussing them with you, Andy. Yeah, absolutely. The pace is only going to pick up on that stuff. So if you really want the deets, you know, the details that go deep on where we are in these cases, uh, this is the right place to do it. Once a week, you get your fill and then uh, you get ready for next week's uh, craziness. Yeah, yeah, 100%. All right, I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. And we'll see you next week on Jack. Jack.
Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer. I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said... Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.